0: Today we have a pleasure-packed episode ready for you. We've invited three pleasure activists who share with us what the experience of the pandemic has been for them and those around them. We talk literacy, explore the tantalizing Kunyaza pleasure practice. We are called to attention to witness our bodies and how a pleasure-based approach is necessary and urgent in sex education and in the sex and reproductive health rights space. And did you know there was a datability meter in the past year and a half? Let's dive right in.
1: Talking about things that make you uncomfortable and awkward is what we do. We break the ice so that you can freely talk about them. This is Not Your Usual Subjects Podcast with your host, Quem. Hmm. This is
0: going to be a yummy episode. We're going to be talking and hearing about sexual pleasure. Um, so... Talking about this always makes me giggly uh, because pleasure and all its narratives feel so good. I've been reading Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good, written and gathered by Adrienne Marie Brown, whose work I deeply honor and make reference to. So I'll share with you an excerpt from the book of one of the different ways that Adrienne defines pleasure. That pleasure includes work and life, and I'll add play, in the realms of satisfaction, joy, and erotic aliveness that brings social and political change. And that's exactly what we will be doing in this episode. And speaking of erotic aliveness... This episode is dedicated to all of us. May we find ways of continuing to welcome pleasure in our lives, the kind that feels like warm butter melting on your skin. So delighted to have you join us today, Jess. Let's perhaps uh, start with a grounding of some sort. In this moment, why is pleasure necessary? Why is it relevant? And what has it meant for you?
2: Hi, and thank you very much for having me. First of all, and that's such an interesting question to start with because I think pleasure can often be something that we overlook or ignore or don't really recognize, but. I think it's extremely necessary for our everyday lives how we find pleasure and happiness and joy in what we do in our daily activities, in our jobs, in our education but with the speed of life I guess sometimes it can just get a bit caught up and forgotten about and I think that's especially what happens with sexual pleasure and the pleasure that can come from sex and intimacy and relationships and It's not really something that's spoken about a lot, but I think it's something that's very important and something that should be spoken about more. Um, It's very necessary. I love that. The pleasure
0: brings um, us back to the moment that we are in as mindfulness, as a reminder to just be and enjoy. Um, So what has it meant for you uh, during this time of the pandemic?
2: Um, I think that's also a really good question because during the peak of the pandemic, I guess everything was quite dark and gloomy and pleasure wasn't something that was at the forefront of everyone's minds. Um, we all had our like chance to seek out sexual pleasure and partners and relationships um, reduced and there was all this horrible stuff going on that I think it became really important to kind of look inside and kind of seek out pleasure because it was something that... W- was hard to find we were locked in our houses so finding pleasure in the little things was important for me in the self-care in the going for a nice walk in the chatting to friends doing the little things that we could do to find pleasure in a time where it was I guess very hard to do so and yeah very isolating
0: Mm -hmm. Um, so you've offered us and shared with us where you're situated with regards to pleasure would you share with us a little about you um, where you're situated on the globe and what you've been spending or are spending
2: your life doing and loving. Yeah, of course. My name is Jess. I am from Scotland, uh, from a town called Perth. And I studied in Glasgow, a big city, which more people have probably heard of. And I'm currently in Bath studying a master's in international development, social justice, and sustainability. And I started that in. September and I finished this month which is exciting and as part of that master's course I um, did a placement, uh, well got the chance to do a placement and the organisation I did my placement with was an organisation called The Pleasure Project and as you can guess they're very focused on pleasure and eroticising safer sex and making sure that pleasure is incorporated incorporated into approaches to sexual health education and in um, sexual health Programs. And I finished that placement last month and have recently been employed with the organization as their media and communications officer. So I'm in the start of that as a proper job and I'm absolutely loving it. I think the work that they do is amazing, the unique perspective that they bring to conversations around sexual health, which are often scary and very medical and scientific and to be honest I'm quite boring and unengaging they bring this fun creative pleasure focused uh, perspective to that then they make it engaging and they make it fun so I'm abs- I'm just loving it
0: yeah uh first of all congratulations on um you know the completion of your masters um we celebrate you um so before we dive deep into our conversation today which I'm very excited to be having Let's talk about the clitoris, as it came up in our conversation when we recently spoke. So we know that it is an essential part of the reproductive system in women. And maybe to expand that definition, people with vaginas. Um, If you did not know, now you do. Uh, And yet there has been an erasure about it in sex ed literatures. At least I know when I was in school, I really did not come across Clitoris, or just even hearing the word clitoris in school. So I thought, why not start off this conversation with a little clitoracy? So remind us, Jess, why is clitoracy important? And um, as you do that, let's talk about the clitoris and the orgasm gap because this is a gendered issue. And so I'm curious to hear what your personal reflection is on this.
2: What an amazing place to start. I'm so happy that um, we're starting the conversation here. I am the same as you I don't remember being taught about the clitoris in my uh, sex education in school I think if I had been told about it and it had been a focus of a lesson I would have remembered because it's an amazing thing its sole function is pleasure it should be something that should be celebrated and shouted from the rooftops and as you said like it's just completely erased and ignored. Um and actually just before I decided to apply for my placement with the pleasure project I was reading an article in the Guardian and it was about the lack of research into the female anatomy in comparison to research into the male anatomy and the penis um in scientific and medical studies and I was reading this article and I was like this is crazy that this is a thing and that the clitoris and the vulva and the vagina aren't as studied and then a fact that jumped out to me was um they didn't i think the first mention of the clitoris or an anatom and sorry my words um study wasn't published until 1998 that's the year that i was born and that just shocked me i think like they've only properly known about the clitoris as long as i've been alive and I think it was 2003 or around then that they realised through an MRI that the clitters had over 8,000 nerve endings. That's also so recent and it's too recent for it to be okay that they just found out about that um, then. So that's actually why I applied for my placement at the Pleasure Project because then I came across the Pleasure Project um, job advertisement and I was like, I need to work for this organisation that's just trying to change this and change the way that sex is spoken about, including this erasure of um, the clitoris in literature.
0: I love it. Let's continue doing and uh, running the clitoracy campaign. And I'm glad that you're getting to do it here um, today. Um, Interestingly, I was 27 years old when I first saw the picture of a clitoris in its glory and fullness. So I saw it on uh, the Instagram stories of um, when Kaz Karen Lucas, who is a Kenyan uh, 2021 TED fellow, and is also a certified sex educator who creates sex positive spaces and content. And Kaz has a podcast, by the way, called The Spread. You can find them on, on Instagram at The Spreadboard. So they posted a poll on Instagram that had a photo of the clitoris. Um, and they asked folks what they thought it was, and I honestly just thought it was a new, beautiful sex toy in the market. So <laughs> I don't know how old anyone who's listening to us today was when they saw the clitoris, but um, please get on your Google, Google the photo of a clitoris, and um, yeah, join on this campaign. Let's um, have a little more cliteracy and knowledge around the cliteracy in our lives. So now that we've started with. Wonderful um, grounding on what that is um, i'm gonna ask Jess um, now that we are still in an ongoing pandemic the covid nineteen um, pandemic uh, what would you say has been the impact um, of uh, the pandemic in the ways in which you've been able to access pleasure? what have been your reflections and how has it also shifted the way in which you've pursued pleasure in
2: um, so I think obviously, every country was different, but in the u k um we had a government mandated lockdown, which meant that you had to stay inside and you couldn't see anyone apart from your household and um, I have a boyfriend who was also living in Glasgow. uh I think he was like a twenty minute walk from my flat, and it was so weird to have my sex life curtailed by the government. And I've had, like, lots of conversations about friends with this and just how, when you really think about it, it was just very strange to be told that, no, I couldn't go and have sex with my boyfriend. Um, my friends couldn't go, go out and make connections and um, meet people and have sex with people. And we were just told, no. And that was just, I think, reflecting on that, it's just strange to think that that happened. Um It's not something, well, it's something that I've had the privilege of not having to experience before, um, which I think is important to also note. But yeah, being told no. And moving on from that, um, I was living um, with my friends and then moved back in with my parents. And that was over the December lockdown that we had, which I think was about lockdown two or three. And um, I had to ask my parents' permission if I could go and see my boyfriend when it was allowed to go and see him and spend time with him but also yes have sex with him and that was so weird because it was like their house so I had to ask if it was okay under their rules like if I could go and see someone because obviously seeing people was a risk um yeah so I think that was one of the main ways that my relationship with sex and pleasure changed over the COVID-19 pandemic it was something that had to be navigated and it was like a law that you couldn't have it because obviously I wasn't living with someone that I was in a relationship with <clears throat> or having sex with um and then another major way it um changed is just before uh we went into lockdown I was out with some friends and we were talking about COVID and how there was the potential that there was going to be this lockdown and I was like we were all laughing well, not laughing but making jokes about how we wouldn't be having sex and how it would just be masturbation for the two weeks that we thought the lockdown would be so um I bought my first vibrato And thank God I did, because as I said, um, I wasn't seeing my boyfriend, so I was very much alone. And yeah, so buying a vibrator, that was definitely a a journey for me. Um, And I think because of this lack of talking about pleasure when I was younger and self-pleasure, I just never had a vibrator, never thought to buy myself one. By the time I may have done so, I don't know, I was in a relationship and I just didn't think about it. And then lockdown came and I was like, okay, this is a big step. And so, yeah, it's definitely changed my relationship with self-pleasure and then thus my relationship with myself a little bit.
0: I very much resonate with that, uh, Jess, uh, because it's also during uh, the pandemic that I've also explored some self-pleasure pursuits. So I I recently discovered, um, which I'm calling the best discovery of COVID-19 as it relates to... uh, my pleasure is I explored a little bit of audio erotica um, and just the exploration of using auditory senses to access um, porn and um, was such a wonderful entry to self-pleasure, I might add. So I deeply resonate with that in terms of the ways in which we were all able to navigate and find ways of um of loving ourselves and being with ourselves, um, pleasurably, sexually. Um, yeah. So let's talk about, um, the policies, um, that were put in place. I know you've already, um, touched on that. Um, and you've already mentioned, um, how it affected you. Um, I wonder, and you also brought up, uh, the conversation around your friends. Um, are there, is there anything else, um, that, um, you saw folks experiencing during that time uh or rather during this time because we are still during going through it so are there any other impacts that you've seen and this also relates to the work that you're doing at the pleasure
2: project um yeah what's what's been coming up well i think um what you said there does sound like an amazing discovery and i actually remember reading something about um yeah like audible porn um on social media during the pandemic Uh, And that just made me think of a general reflection over the lockdown. I think people began to speak more about sex and pleasure a little bit, weirdly, because it was something that in the media we've been told that you couldn't have sex. And Nicola Sturgeon, the the, the Scottish First Minister, was actually explicitly having to say that um, you can't have sex with your partner or casual partners. Okay, now people can go out and they can stay at someone else's houses, so casual sex is allowed, which I think is just crazy because we do live in a society where um sex isn't spoken about, especially not in mainstream media really that much, or in the government. Um so I enjoyed that. And I think, yeah, people began to speak about um sex and pleasure a lot more, which I think is a general reflection. Um, within my friends like what so my flatmate um one of my close friends she has been speaking to some like she made a connection with someone on snapchat and I think they spoke for about a year and a half without meeting which I think is also quite weird if you think about it because normally making connections people on social media um so she had yeah she made a connection with this guy who was a friend and they spoke for about a year but they'd never met up until about a year later which I think's Also quite a unique impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. And um, through working with the Pleasure Project, as I was saying um, just before, a lot of work has gone into um, how to have a sexy self-isolation. So they did a lot of work on how to have a self-care night to yourself, put on some nice music, masturbate, and they were promoting the benefits of masturbation, especially in a very stressful situation. dark time like a pandemic it relieves stress releases endorphins makes you feel good is just good for your overall health so that's been a conversation that they've been really trying to promote and um and another one in line with that is also um safe porn and accessing your porn uh, in an ethical way because obviously being locked inside and isolating people are accessing their porn well their sexual excitement and their pleasure from porn sites so they did a lot of work into making sure that advising how to guys and how to make, (coughs) excuse me, how to um, access your porn in an ethical way and have fun online, but also have fun online and be safe. So I think it has just pushed conversations into this new area where they may not have, they may have been going anyway, but the COVID-19 pandemic definitely pushed this idea of Online sex, and people and like governments having to talk about it more, and people having to navigate new relationships where they weren't necessarily able to meet in person uh
0: thanks so much, Jess. um I think that what you share um in terms of how sexual pleasure is actually a necessary part of our aliveness, our feeling uh mentally well of releasing stress, and I'm sure that you'll also share with us how folks can also access some of this tips of accessing pleasure in a safe and um, uh, an ethical way. So would you also, because you've already told us about the Pleasure Project, so would you tell us how the pleasure best approach that Pleasure Project is using to comprehensive Um, as a comprehensive sexual health and reproductive right um, approach. So would you talk talk a little bit more about that? Because I know you do incredible work around how you approach sexual uh, health and reproductive rights through a pleasure-based approach, which is something we don't often see out there. So,
2: yeah, please tell us about that. Um, The general idea of it is just sex positivity and being more positive within whatever sexual health work, an organisation or a programme or sex education. Um, so whatever the aims are, because a lot of the time we focus in sex sexual health programmes, there's a focus on the negatives and what to say no to and how to pre- prevent disease and how to prevent sexual violence. And they're all very important factors. But the Pleasure Project is saying that this needs to be done with a recognition of the positives that can come from sex, and um, the joy and the desire and intimacy and the pleasurable experiences that can also happen when sex is safe, but sex is also good. So it's about incorporating pleasure and sex positivity, I think, is the main thing. Um, so the way that so the Pleasure Project is an advocacy organisation, so they really aim to push. This pleasure-based approach and advocate for pleasure in a variety of settings and kind of open people's eyes to it. I think that's the best way that I can um, relate to it because I hadn't really thought about this perspective before when I joined the organization. But when someone says to you, "Most people have sex for pleasure. They just that they they joy and intimacy and pleasure. That's why a lot of people have sex. But when you think about sex education, you always think about the negatives." So why would they not incorporate the positives and make it relatable and engaging to try and foster those better results in reducing SDIs or reducing sexual violence? Because when you incorporate pleasure, it's more engaging, it's more relatable and people and it, you know, people engage with it and it can get better results. So yeah, they're just, what I found with my work with them as a media and communications officer, it's all about kind of getting that, that um, message out there. As best you can, opening people's eyes to it and going to conferences and saying, we understand what you're trying to do. But have you thought about it from this perspective and trying to build that what we've been calling a pleasure wave? Because it is building this pleasure wave, but we want to build it even more and get people to ride the pleasure wave with us. Pleasure wave. I like
0: that. Um, as you were speaking, I was just thinking about it even when we started this conversation and I mentioned the reproductive health. Um, or rather the reproductive system. And I'm just thinking that perhaps we even need to expand that, you know, such that it's not just a reproductive system. It's also a pleasurable part of our bodies. That maybe we need to even add that in our language, you know. And I also just went back down memory lane and I was thinking how um, in school, Uh, In primary school here um, in Kenya, I do remember us watching videos, uh, being shown videos, gory images of uh, STIs and, you know, all of this sexual transmitted diseases. And like we're saying, um, information is important, but definitely adding a narrative around the fact that we have sex to have pleasure, to enjoy it, I think that is very important. And the pleasure-based approach that you speak of, I think what it means for me as I'm thinking about it is that I get to acknowledge my own desires and walk through the shame that might have come from all of this narratives, all of this teachings and guidance, quote unquote, that I have gotten as with regards to protecting myself and all of that. But here is a new narrative, a new pleasure wave telling me that Pleasure pursuits a mind to explore. And that's such a wonderful um, message. And um, speaking of messages, and um, I wonder, Jess, what would be the pleasure gospel that you leave us with so that we get to push on this pleasure wave further?
2: Um, I think the pleasure gospel is the tagline of the pleasure project, which is making. Um, safe sex sexy because erotica is really safe and um, sex education is really sexy it's about bringing the two together and as you were saying changing the narrative and um, I think just another um, bit of advice I'd like to bring up just before we close is that uh, the Pleasure Project have actually just launched seven aspirational pleasure principles within this pleasure wave that are an easy how-to guide and how to support you within yourself and within your organization or your work within sexual health or SRHR of how to be sex positive and include sexual pleasure and come at it from this new stance that makes it fun and exciting and it isn't shameful and it's not scary something that people want to engage in rather than, as you were saying, like, carry away in shame because all they've been told is sex is dangerous and sex is bad. We want to make safe sex sexy so you can have safe and good sex. Thank you, Jess.
0: Very clear gospel that you're leaving us with. Um, So please share with us where we can find the work uh, of The Pleasure Project where can we find you on the socials? How
2: can we contribute? So, you can find um, the information about the pleasure principles and our blog, and more information about us and publications that the pleasure project have done on our webpage, which is just www.thepleasureproject. And then our socials. So, our Instagram handle is at the underscore pleasure project and our twitter is at the pleasure proj they're our main ones and we also have a linkedin account just under the pleasure project and a facebook page that's the same and we have a lot of exciting stuff coming up as i was saying this pleasure wave is building we've just launched the launched the seven principles which i really hope people listening go and have a look at and just to really have a inner reflection and get involved in these thought-provoking conversations about how can you make your work more pleasurable because pleasure is one of the most important things in life, finding joy and pleasure, especially within your sex life. One blog post that I would maybe love to direct people to that I was very proud of writing is called Why Pleasure Should Be Part of the Solution to Sexual Violence and it can be found on our blog uh, under that title and Writing that was a really big turning point within my, I guess, pleasure self-discovery um, because I was so angry after the murder of um Sarah Everard, uh, which sparked anger across the UK and I think that spread out across the globe um, because she was killed in a senseless act in violence against women and it's a big issue in the world. Uh, So I got on my laptop and started typing and I just really got stuck into the pleasure project work and read all these amazing articles about how if you come at um, consent-based learning from a pleasure-focused direction, it gets better results and it reduces violence and empowers women and empowers consent-based sexual relationships and relationships in general. So that was a very important piece to me personally and if people wanted to read it i'd be absolutely honoured but i do think it's a important topic of conversation to be had
0: during her childhood in chile valentina Valle, for short Loved listening to the song you're hearing. This song by a queer Chilean is about her lesbian lover. But Valentina did not know this back in the day. What she also didn't know then was that she was also going to experience her own love story. A pandemic love story at that. So
3: when the pandemic started in March 2020... And um, I found myself in a moment of life where things were changing a lot for me. I had just broken up with my ex. Um, and before that, when I was dating her, we had just like started uh, being non-monogamous. So I had also very recently discovered dating apps and casual sex and one-night stands and just dating in general um and I was really enjoying that I was really uh yeah going through many changes but then boom the world closed out of a sudden and also my friends left the city because they live in other European cities but I am from Chile so I couldn't really go home, so I just stayed here and I was all alone (laughs) for a few weeks, um, which was really hard I guess, Um, and obviously just seeing through the online world what was going on everywhere else, especially in Chile, especially back home, um, you didn't really want to go out and eight people for you know at least at the beginning (laughs) because at some point I got bored and I downloaded tinder again and I was just like seeing what was out there right and then I started chatting with someone and I really liked her so we decided to meet and this was already like April or May but but still I felt incredibly guilty and incredibly I don't know. Like, not so sure if I should be meeting people um, just for a date. While I don't know, my family were in lockdown and and all that. So, for example, my sister she's dating um, her boyfriend, and they basically did long distance, even though they live like almost in the same city, because um, yeah, because of lockdown they just couldn't see each other for months and they have been dating for like three years or something. So I just felt it was a bit weird to be, you know, seeing people um, to have that privilege, I guess. So I kept it a secret at first. So we, we, we met with this girl and, and it was... There was a lot of chemistry. It was really, really nice at the beginning. And you know how... The stereotypes on lesbian relationships, everything happening super fast, and yeah, I keep basically moving with each other. Well, it was a little bit like that, <laughs> but it might be just our apocalyptics and like feeling that, like the world is ending, and you might as well just you know go all the way for the person, uh and I remember like I never lied to my mom, but <laughs> This time, uh, I just really did not want to tell her that we have met on Tinder because there's a pandemic. <laughs> pandemic. So I told her that some friend had introduced us. And also, it was quite some time after we started dating that I, I told her because, you know, I just wanted to be sure. Um, But yeah. And then. Well, it didn't last for long, like we were together like five or six months Um, and after that I just kept using other dating apps and I also noticed how they changed a lot. Dating apps, like you can say other stuff about yourself. For example, I remember Tinder had this special feature of Tinder Passport um, that during the pandemic you can use, you could just, um, yeah, uh, be in anywhere in the world. Because I mean, at the end of the day, we were all doing long distance kind of, um, which I found it was very strange. Like, why would you like to, <laughs> to swipe on people that live like thousands of kilometers away? But I guess for some people it was interesting. I definitely used it to like. go to chile like see if i would run into (laughs) someone that i knew in the streets but no it didn't happen it was just funny um and also uh there's this other app hinge where you could say your uh, vaccination status um so you can be like uh not vaccinated yet or partially vaccinated or fully vaxxed and it's so weird how that can make you be more or less dateable if you have a vaccine or not. I even remember at some point, because I got COVID, uh, yeah, like in September, at some point I got it. Um, got sick. And then afterwards, when I was out of quarantine, obviously, um, I would write in my Tinder bio, like something like, oh, I'm already immune to the virus. Just so you know, like <laughs> I felt like super immune, and I and I thought it was like a funny thing to say, or like even it would make some people feel safer about meeting with me because I mean I had just recovered from the virus, so I wouldn't catch it again. But that's so weird. <laughs> that, that made it more made me more dateable, I guess. Um, and I guess that also relates to pleasure. So, yeah, I mean, this is a sexual episode, sexual pleasure episode, Um, and for me, sexual pleasure has always been a very central part of my life. Um, I feel very motivated by it, and I don't know, it's it's like this force that is important to my decisions and to the things i do and to my happiness as well and, and i think it's, it's good to say it like that and not feel shame about it and um, sexual pleasure is an important part of my life for sure and it has been for many years um and i guess i i access this sexual pleasure through dating apps and non-monogamy and um yeah i guess this the the lifestyle i have of like going on dates and all that um and i feel like it is like the sexual pleasure is more accessible than maybe it was before through dating apps because you can just like meet up with you you like definitely like, Yeah, you suddenly have access to all these people, to all this pool of people. And even though dating apps can be very shitty sometimes, many times, and (laughs) can just give you the illusion that there are a lot of people out there and make you a bit shallow maybe through that. um, It also just allows us to meet more people. and, And especially for queer people like me, it's not so easy to just randomly meet someone at a bar, you know? It doesn't happen. (laughs) Um, And there's something about dating during a pandemic that also shifted the ways we go on dates. So obviously you couldn't go to the movies or you couldn't go to a restaurant or you couldn't go to an event. So it was a bit boring because all you could do was like go for a walk in a park or yeah, meet at a house or... I don't know just yeah bring some beers and drink them in a bench sitting on a bench <laughs> um, although for queer people it's not rare that our dates are like that because you it's not always safe to do the kind of dates that straight people do like yeah two gay men going to a restaurant or, um, or to queer woman or someone and a trans person going out to a bar is not always safe unless you go to like a gay bar you know or something like that and which are not also in every place in the world obviously so it's very common with queer people that you just have to meet in a house that you like. You, you can be out in the public so maybe the pandemic for us did not change that very much because the public space wasn't accessible to us before either. Uh, and I think that's, that's something interesting to think about. <laughs> um, and I would also like to talk a bit and some about, like, be more about something I've been part of which is um, a research on sexual fantasies, uh, because that also got me thinking a lot on being a bit more open on sexual pleasure in general. Um, so there's this research project called Yes Please that is taking place here in the Netherlands, uh, and it's a it's a big project that is conducted interviews. Uh, To people about what they fantasize about, what um, what turns them on the most, and things like that. Um, Yeah, and there are a lot of different fantasies, uh, but at the end of the day, they just form these big categories of fantasies. So you have like um, people that fantasize with power control during sex, or you know, or with non-monogamy, or with uh, adventure and and new things or with um, romance and passion or or threesomes or orgies, you know, all these kind of things. Um, And that's when I, so I helped with uh, conducting interviews and I was also interviewed by a friend about my own sexual fantasies Um, and something I, I noticed through this is that we all, fantasies about quite similar things even though it's obviously not always the same but the fact that you can like create this these categories um really tell you that I guess sexual pleasure in general or the things that turns us on are very collective or community-based or social um, and that's something important to share as well because through this project, I will tell friends about it, and then we that, that would end up on us discussing our fantasies and being like, Oh my god, that also, yeah, does something for me as well. Or, um, or yeah, I also fantasize about that, <laughs> and, and I guess also just. The whole spending more time with ourselves and giving ourselves some time to discover these aspects of us um, breaks a few of the taboos, not only with sexual pleasure, but also with gender identity, maybe. Um, I could see how many people in my circles, like queer friends, explore a lot with their own gender presentation during the pandemic, because you had a chance to be by yourself, not be like super in the public uh, and explore. I mean, I did it myself, I, <laughs> I got a big haircut. I, I had really, really short hair at some point and it was very freeing um, to be able to do that without having to go to uni every day and have people suddenly You know, it gives you a bit of anxiety if you get like a very radical haircut and then you have to go to school the next day and you know everyone will be making comments about it. So I think it just allowed me to like transition that better, try different haircuts, do whatever I wanted, and without having a lot of people commenting on it. You know. So I don't know. Those are are a few things that I thought about. Um. My own experience with dating during the pandemic and sexual pleasure, and I really hope that uh, it will so, it will be something that is talked more about, uh, especially for young people. And um, because when it comes to sex and when it comes to sex education and all this stuff, it's always about like the bad aspects of sex. So when you get about sex in school, if you get taught, because back in Chile, sex education is barely, barely exists. You only, they only tell you like, don't do it. And if you do it, you're going to get pregnant or you're going to get HIV or you're going to get gonorrhea or whatever. Like it's, so then when I was, when I was a girl and I didn't know about it, And I just heard like, oh yeah, sex just leads to pregnancy or leads to diseases. I was just like, okay, why do people have sex then? (laughs) I don't understand. Um, And then um, no one talks to you about the good aspects of sex that the pleasure behind it, like the, yeah, that you can have fun while doing it and you can talk about it. And the more you talk about it, especially with your partners, the better it gets (laughs) um so yeah that's that's my story
0: it is important that we amplify the narratives of a people a community that has been upholding pleasure as necessary so Let's visit Rwanda and look at the ancient old practice called Kunyaza.
1: According to Rwandan legend, Kunyaza originated with an ancient queen who summoned one of our male guards to make love to her whilst her husband was away on a military expedition. The guard was petrified and trembled with fear. He held his manhood as he approached her and began to shake uncontrollably as his penis repeatedly struck a clitoris which caused intense pleasure, resulting in a huge gush of water. The water was so copious that it formed one of the great lakes of East Africa. When the king returned, the queen asked her husband to perform the striking motion on her clitoris. The clit striking motion became known as the kunyaza technique. Now, while the legend talks of a cisgender man, this is a practice that can be practiced beyond the confines of gender and identity. This ancient old practice continues to be practiced today in Uganda, Kenya and now you could try too.
0: Thank you for joining us today, Eno. So, would you please tell us about yourself? Okay. My name is Eno Abasi
4: fondly called Eno by almost everyone who meets me because they sometimes have difficulties pronouncing the full thing. I am 24 years old and I am a sexual reproductive health educator, a public health nutritionist and recently a tech sister that is based in Lagos, Nigeria.
0: All right. Would you share with us what your sex education like was in school? I mean, now that you're a sexual, health and reproductive educator, looking back, what was sex ed like? And what are some some of the real opportunities you see in terms of um, making that better? What needs to change?
4: Um, I would say sex education in Nigeria was almost non-existent for me for my journey. Because right from primary into secondary school, sex ed wasn't something that was included in our curriculum. The closest we got to sex ed was in biology class. And all they thought in biology was the basics about the reproductive system. And even that, at that, they never really went all the way in. Just gave us surface, this is what this part is and this is what is used for, full stop. And joining into university, it became harder because I had a lot of questions and I wanted answers to those questions, like why is my body changing this way? Why am I beginning to feel this way? Why are all these things happening to me and my friends? And each time I would ask questions, I would be looked at as why am I asking this sort of questions for, for, for a child who is supposed to not be interested in things like this? Um, In university, most of the information we got, because by then they had put sex ed as one of our classes, the only message I remember being preached was abstinence. And that was passed along with subtle, subtle, but not so subtle messages regarding our religion and our culture, because Nigeria is a very cultural and religious country. So as opposed to actually giving us real information, they ended up sharing pictures of what various reproductive organs looked like when they were inflicted with sexually transmitted diseases and telling us that, oh, trust me, you really do not want to catch this and the only way to avoid having it is to avoid sex as a whole. The only way you can avoid having this, if you want to have sex, is for you to get married. So... Outside of marriage, you should not be thinking about sex or what it is because it shouldn't be any concern to you. I believe there is a real opportunity here because there is a huge gap in the knowledge in the knowledge about sex and sexual education and about reproduction as a general topic, and it is a lot of work, yes, but you know. If somebody or a few people decide to take it on and keep pushing the agenda and keep on sharing all the information they have access to, I believe a lot of things will change in this country.
0: I totally hear you on that. I mean, it is somewhat the same experience um, that I've had or rather I had uh, in my sex education um, of images that were inflicted with STIs as a way of educating us on um, sex and its repercussions and constantly leaving out pleasure as one of the major reasons, if not a main reason that we have sex. So absolutely, yes. Um, so as we move forward, I'd love to hear um what are the pleasure narratives that you feel strongly should be embodied?
4: So in general, pleasure narratives are not spoken about normally. They are not spoken about enough. And the only times pleasure is ever mentioned or suggested is when it is talking about male pleasure and brought in from the angle of how to pleasure your husband, how to you know keep your husband in the marriage and how to ensure that your husband is fully satisfied and pleased with what you put in the bedroom so i would say the pleasure narrative i want to see and hear more of is pleasure for women and not only pleasure for women but advocating for self-pleasure and for women to take charge of their pleasure and not feel shame for asking to receive pleasure for when they eventually share their bodies or share their space and say okay, I am willing to do this thing with you, but I also want to enjoy it and not feel like it is a mechanical process. Because most of the times, it is always pleasure for the man. And pleasure for the man comes in in your, in your the confines of marriage. Outside of that, it is not ever spoken about. And if you talk about what about me, why not me they tend to look at you and then treat you like a sex worker. And in my country, sex work is nothing that you should be proud of or should be able to say that you partake in outside of your room where no other person is. And they have shown time and time again how terribly they treat sex workers or anyone who is perceived to be one, so much so that even if the person decided to go for assistance or go for help to either the police or healthcare workers, they would be turned away because it is said, you're the one who decided to go into that line of work, so you should be ready for all the actions and the repercussions that come with doing it. So definitely pleasure for women and self-pleasure.
0: Thanks, and You've really brought a very um, important piece there about sex work and and, and sex workers, And sex work is work, and that is on that, and that is very clear for us and in line with our feminist identity here at um, Not Your Usual Subjects podcast. And I really also love what you said in terms of women being able to take up space and take up responsibility and own their bodies when it comes to pleasure and self-pleasure and all different aspects of sexual pleasure for them. Um, Within your work, I know you also talk about bodies. Please tell us a little bit more about that line of work. Outside of promoting sexual health
4: and female pleasure, bodies, I would say, is one of my next favorite things to talk about because anyone who meets me, the very first thing they always that that always stands out to them is I do not exactly look how I sound. So when they hear my voice or communicate with me and see my photos, they believe I am smaller than what I currently am. And so when they eventually do meet me, it's always, oh, I never realized that you were this tall or you were this big or you were fat. And I'm like, okay, I don't see how that changes who I am or anything. Nigeria is a country that has mixed emotions. So we have a a number of geopolitical zones. Where I come from is the South-South. And in the South-South, women with bigger bodies who are on the thicker side, plus size women, are more celebrated because they look at it like, the bigger you are, that means the more of a homemaker you would be, the more effective you would be in taking care of children, being a a source of pleasure for your husband, you would also be um, a vision of, you know, social political class, because it means your husband is doing well, he's taking care of you. But when you now move towards the south, um, towards the north, and towards the west, women who are smaller are more appreciated. And I've had to live in the west for quite a while, I was sent to secondary school there, And teenagers can be very brutal. So I have been almost constantly bullied right from when I was 14 up until now because I still live in the West because of work. And people constantly making derogatory comments around my body. And then, you know, you have one sect of people saying, oh, you're fat, you should hide, you should not put your body out on display, you should only wear black, you should be fully covered. You shouldn't show any form of skin. You should be ashamed that you are in a body like this. And then you have people on the other side who are saying, okay, I like your body, but I really do not want to be seen in public with you. So, you know, can we hang out in secret or, you know, when the lights are not so bright where people won't notice us. So sharing bodies and talking about bodies and saying bodies should be allowed to just be if a body needs to be changed it should be the personal choice of the person in the body and it was also hard because here i was plus sized and in the health sector and i remember the times i would need to go in for one checkup or the other and many times the doctor would not even bother looking at my medical history or my records but would instantly make suggestions that okay if you lost, like, say, five, 5 kg, maybe it would be better for you. And I would be looking like, I came in for an ear infection, but apparently my body is the problem, so I really don't understand why and how that should be an issue. So it's more or less like a personal advocacy and also advocating so that if there is anyone else who is going through the same things, they understand that. Their bodies are just their bodies. They shouldn't put too much pressure or too much importance as to what their bodies are. Yes, take care of yourself. Yes, be kind to yourself. But there is so much more to life than being fixated on the size of your stomach or the size of your thighs.
0: I couldn't have said it any better. You know, bodies are bodies and the work that you do... When it comes to that, I think that it is very important and necessary because our bodies are the spaces in which we access pleasure and therefore it is important and and necessary that we love our bodies and we take ourselves on that journey of loving our bodies and learning to shun out the noise of folks who shame us um, in the streets in the hospitals. Um, Yeah, so thank you for sharing that. During this pandemic period, I wonder what are some of the questions and concerns that you have been getting on Instagram, Telegram, the different channels that you have folks connecting with you? What has been coming up in terms of questions around pleasure, concerns around pleasure? So
4: the major questions I've been getting around pleasure, concerns about pleasure since the pandemic hit are, one, asking about how do they even start the journey? Like, how do they bring pleasure to themselves? Because for a lot of people, this is something that they have never had to do, never navigated, something that is always spoken about in hush tones and then there's a lot of shame around it and it's something that just shouldn't be spoken about more or less to a stranger who you do not know someone off of the internet so a lot of people wonder okay so i know i have these organs i know i have these body parts what exactly do i do with them how do i utilize this to ensure that i am receiving pleasure a lot of questions around okay So now you have explained what pleasure is and how I can get pleasure. What can I use to get pleasure? So we are talking about sex toys. We are talking about things to incorporate into the bedroom with your partner if you're safe and you feel comfortable with that. And when you're talking about sex toys, you're also talking about which sex toys are the best. How do you know which sex toys are going to be harmful in the long run, which are made of good materials that are safe to use that will not cause any issues for me and in that um, area quite a number of sex toy sellers started popping up because now a lot of people have a lot of free time to themselves and a lot of private time and are looking to fill in the blank spaces because once upon a time you would have to be out of your home at 7 a.m and you probably wouldn't be getting back till 7 p.m and between unwinding and getting sets to settle in for the night, you really don't have any time or enough time to sit down and just do your thing, listen to your body, touch her, know how it feels, and discover what it is that you like. So those are some of the questions. Another angle where, because of the use of sex toys, some people were beginning to experience like yeast infections, UTIs, And we now uncover, or I then uncovered a different part where we had to start talking about hygiene. How do you wash your sex toys? How do you wash your vulvas? How do you, you know, what are the things you do when you practice self-hygiene? And then we also started looking at contraception, because a lot of people were also trying to avoid pregnancies, especially those who had partners who were living in the same house with them, which meant... Almost constant access and having to respond to the demands of their partners, and trying to find what facilities actually offer proper sexual health care that would give you the care that you needed without trying to, will I say, shame you into submission or make you feel like you were doing something wrong because you decided to take charge of the sexual health. And because of the questions and all the comments especially when i would get private messages from people who would feel too ashamed to engage with work in public i started up two telegram groups i also joined a whatsapp group where it is mostly um, muslim women who ask questions and talk about something that you know otherwise they would not be able to have access to and also creating a space where women are comfortable to share their escapades, their experiences, and ask the very uncomfortable, embarrassing questions, knowing fully well that they will always receive an answer and they would always have other people there who would hold their hands and guide them and share their own experiences to help them make better choices.
0: On the point that you're sharing about SRH services, sexual and reproductive health, Access to services and and providers in that regard, could you share with us a little bit more about that What does that look like, especially now, with all of the things that you've mentioned have been coming up as a result of um women and and general people taking up their pleasure what 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 is the landscape like for s r h services and and providers? And what what should change? So I have noticed that in general
4: SRH providers and care is very limited. They are grossly understaffed, underfunded and not exactly regarded as a necessary a necessary branch of care when it comes to the health sector. So it's like Why would they waste funds on something as trivial as this when they can be putting all those funds into oncology, into pediatrics and the likes? And by right, every federal and every state hospital should have an SRH clinic and a a well-equipped SRH clinic. But most times you walk into the hospital and you ask, oh, okay, so this is what I want to get done. And the only services they would offer is HIV screening and to check if you're pregnant or not. And if you are pregnant in, the, in any case and you do not want to be pregnant, abortions are illegal and punishable by jail time. So it is another area that says, OK, you want access to health care for this for this area. But then, we, we really cannot give it to you. We will not give it to you. And when you eventually find reproductive health clinics, it is mostly geared towards family planning. And it is boldly, boldly written, family planning. you walk in as a single female, and the question is asked, very first thing before, your name, your age, are you married? The moment the answer is no, you can already feel the judgments being passed. They treat you differently. They would not exactly be as welcoming or as accommodating. If something is wrong, you'd be you would be treated like... You were the one who decided to go and be fornicating. So why are you now ashamed? Or when you'd walk in and say, Oh, I want to get tested for... Dash, dash, dash. I am sexually active. And I am concerned that my partner might not be faithful. It's just like, don't even bother... Some hospitals actually do offer full sexual and reproductive health care, but most of them are private. And private hospitals are known for being super expensive. So you then question why is it not accessible to the general public? The few sexual and reproductive health clinics, there is one major brand that does that in Nigeria, and Almost every other day, somebody is trying to get the place shut down. They are trying to find a way to get the Ministry of Health to shut down the facility because they are the only ones who have said, from the moment a woman decides to take charge of her life, from the age of 16, 15, we are here to give her help and we do not need to get parental consent. We need young girls to take charge and decide whether or not they want to have children early, or even have children at all. And to that effect, we'll be providing them with a number of free services, like every now and then they do promotions where they say, as long as you come in from, let's say the 13th of September up until the 20th of September, you get all your tests done free of charge. Are there any women who want to get like the implants, who want to get um, more permanent contraception methods done? please feel free to come in. We are going to get that done for you. And it is such a big hassle because you you find them having to hide their services or having to do things under lock and key, but they are still trying in these very unfriendly slash hostile climes to provide the service that is very necessary. Over the next, let's see, let me be realistic, next decade, by the time people my age are beginning to take up more political positions, I hope to see a change in that in that regard, where sex is no longer looked at something that is tied to somebody's worth and virtue and actually identified as, okay, this is something that happens every day. Almost everybody is going to participate, so we need to put it in the healthcare budget. We need to appropriate funds. We need to ensure that there are doctors, there are nurses, lab technicians, it needs to be able to stand and function well to serve the people in the country.
0: Thank you so much for those reflections, Enno. Definitely, sexual and reproductive health is more than HIV testing, should be more than HIV testing, more than family planning for married women. We need it to be taken beyond those premises and we need them to be accessible to all without having to break the bank. And that's why we are saying sexual and reproductive health rights. They are rights that we demand and ask for. And on the topic that you brought up about abortion, um, I'm so glad that we will also in our future episode be discussing about self-managed abortions. And uh, we will be sharing different stories and reflections on what that is. So we hope that you stay tuned for that. Um, and I would also like to affirm your work of having spaces where women in their diversity can share their sex capids. This is a very liberatory practice. it offers a space for women and gender diverse folk that uh, gives them an opportunity and a safe space to be free and to be joyful and to share their pleasure with others um and I love that. that. That is what we want in the present and in the future. That is a feminist reality and a feminist future. Um, Eno, before I let you go, please share with us a sexual pleasure nugget. A personal favorite, perhaps, that you know, you'd like to leave us with. <laughs> okay.
4: So I would definitely say and share that sexual pleasure is not a myth. It is very real, and you cannot wait and depend on other people to find what is your pleasure point, and your pleasure is just on the other side of personal exploration.
0: There you have it, folks. I hope this conversation has awakened your pleasure senses, politics, and goals like they have mine. Thank you so much for being with us today, Eno, and thank you for your work. The support of Not Your Usual Subjects podcast comes from staff and volunteers at Stories to Action who are conjuring alongside young people situated across borders all around the world. Together, we envision a world where every young person's voice is heard on their sexual health and reproductive rights, even in times of public health emergencies like COVID-19. We would like to honor, thank, and acknowledge all our contributors and guests for sharing their stories To action. ShareNet International Netherlands, who we are so deeply grateful for funding and resourcing this podcast, reminds us of the role that philanthropy in working with youth in their diversity should and can play in raising collective consciousness. Please head on over to share netinternational.org to find your regional hub. Please commune with us on social media to find out about our next episode and share your feedback, thoughts and reflections with us. This is on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, add stories to action. Links are available on the show notes at the podcasting platform of your choice that you listen to us from. Please share this episode with someone awesome ones you know should have a listen. Goodbye. <music>